0: So Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 8, and uh, Lord willing, you are there, and I did not lead you astray by my incorrect chaptering of the book of Ephesians, and let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us grace, we pray that you would personally involve yourself dramatically and magnificently into our lives, and that Father, you would captivate our hearts and our minds and surrender our attention to you. That, Father, the sins that we have been participating in that are so easily distracting would be obliterated by the magnificence of your glory. And that, Father, you would reveal yourself and the riches that you have for us this evening, and that we would understand what it is that you are revealing to us through your servant Paul, who through all those years ago, thousands of years ago, penned these words that your holy spirit gave to him that your holy spirit has spoken and that has been preserved even till this very day we thank you for that lord we pray that you'd be glorified and honored by what takes place this evening it's in jesus name that we pray amen well, last week we had a huge advantage that was given to us we had looked into the first 7 verses of ephesians chapter 3 And in careful examination of those verses, we began to see a revelation of a mystery. And again, a mystery, biblically speaking, is a a truth of God, or we could even narrow it down now to what we had learned last week. It is a glimpse into the mind of God. It is a glimpse into the plans and perfections of God, specifically relating to your life, that God has a specific ministry and a specific plan for us, and a mystery is a biblical expression for knowing those things. Something that has not been revealed to us, that is now being revealed to us, something that was mysterious, but it's something that is beyond human comprehension. Something that is incapable for any human to search out on their own means. It requires God to explain these things to us. And indeed, anytime you understand or you you examine the concept of a mystery, a mystery is a revelation of God that produces an advantage in your life or produces a benefit within your life. It's not just simply knowing something, but it's knowing something that radically and dramatically and drastically changes your life. And these are things that are so important. In fact, There are things that humanity is beginning to grope for. And in fact, Acts even begins to tell us of the idea of people who have been given the ability to, at the very least, but people who try to find or try to grope for God. And the picture that's painted there is people that are in darkness, people that are in dark places trying to find God. And they may either in their own mindset not be thinking that they're trying to find God, or they may have been regenerated from the Holy Spirit and brought into a different position of seeking out God but at any rate it is a common quality amongst humanity in their darkness and in the lifestyles in which they live to try to grope for god and i think one of the specific reasons is because they were created as worshipers all of us were created as worshipers and all of us need to begin to worship god and so that we grope around for that concept we've been engineered we've been designed we've been created to experience enjoyment of god but because of our sin and spiritual deadness we try to grope or find for things in our world and so that's the issue that's at stake when we talk about the mysteries of god is that these are the revelations of truths that we really and ultimately need and want, but until we've experienced Christianity and still we've experienced salvation, we try to look for that in other things. So in other words, long-awaited concepts, long-awaited principles that you've been seeking out can be ultimately and permanently and in fact even eternally fulfilled in a relationship with God, So we saw the explanation of that mystery specifically laid out to becoming heirs of the same promises as Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, we could even summarize the, the Old Testament in two different perspectives. There's one perspective of the Old Testament that begins to show what sinful humanity is like. That's why you see judgment on plenty of texts of Scripture. That's why you see horrible things happening. That's why you see people like Assyria or violent people rising up. Is The Old Testament is giving you a glimpse of when sin is as bad as it could be. It's giving you a glimpse into how sin is going to negatively affect your life and, in fact, bring judgment upon your life. There's nothing worse than that. There there is literally nothing worse than a lifestyle in sin because it not only degrades your quality of life, but it also brings judgment. That's the epitome of terribleness. That's the epitome of the worst kind of life that you could experience when you're living in sin. It is deceiving you, thinking that it's giving you quality of life and in fact is actually taking away your quality of life and ultimately brings judgment upon you. That's the epitome of the worst life that could be lived. That's what the Old Testament begins to show us. In fact, the Old Testament is often referred to as the law of God. And even specifically just the first five books of the Old Testament can be referred to as the law of God. And we know from the New Testament teaching that the law of God exposes sin to reveal it for being as bad as it actually is. And then the second aspect of it is that you glimpse, you get glimpses of this incredible community, of this incredible society, of this incredible way of life, of this incredible group of people that they live under the direct and personal relationship and influence with an almighty God that actually exists. That's one of the problems when you look at the lifestyles of those around Israel in the Old Testament, of those nations that were idolatry, that were idolatrous, those nations that pursued other gods, like Psalm 150 begins to talk about, their idols are silver and gold. They have mouths, but they can't talk. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have throats, but they can't talk. They have all these specific human bodily parts, but they can't experience what those parts are intended to do, what those senses are intended to do. And it says, all those who make them are like them all those who pursue idolatry are blind, deaf, and dumb and incapable of experiencing life as how it was intended to be experienced. Their gods don't exist. And of course, all sin is idolatry. And so anytime that we sin, it's doing that exact same lifeless activity. It's doing that exact same low quality of life activity. and so that when you compare with Israel whose God lives. And this God does not just simply live, but He guards them. He protects them. He encourages them. He strengthens them. He's their defender. He is their avenger. He is their source of joy. He is their source of satisfaction. He is their source of eternal life even. That's one of the reasons why you... Begin to see such a wonderful and curious fascination with all things vampire and being serious on this issue. There's such a wonderful sensation within the communities of wanting to see things vampire because it's a way of life that's eternal. And you have all sorts of different advancements and different things, and people doing different medical procedures to do what? To advance their lives you have tons of people that could sell best-selling books on the secret to aging and not doing it. (laughs) Because the human mind understands and comprehends a limited existence. And yet, when you examine Israel, there are all these promises being made to Israel of not just simply living eternally, but living eternally in a state of bliss. Living eternally in a state of happiness living eternally in a state of satisfaction, and not just simply that, not just simply a lifestyle yet future, but the fact that they can even experience a lifestyle now that the greatest of all civilizations, Egypt, could be taken down by God. The greatest of all civilizations, Babylon, they could be brought out of that that they could be granted their own nation, that they could be granted their own kingdom. In fact, even Abraham in Hebrews 11 understood that he was moving into a land physically now to occupy it, but he never expected to be there permanently. He was looking for a kingdom yet future. He was looking for a heavenly city, the city of God where he can dwell with God forever. These are promises being made to the Old Testament. And what we've learned so far in the book of Ephesians is this idea that we by pursuing this Messiah, by pursuing this Christ, by getting into a relationship and fellowship and a religion whereby He is our God, you can have those exact same promises. You get to be included in those promises. Ephesians is such a wonderful Gentile book. In other words, a non-Jewish book whereby you get to figure out that you actually are Jewish. Jewish. Same promises given to Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations because of you. You get to be an heir of that promise. And of course that promise also included the forgiveness of sins. If you have not come to terms with the fact that you are haunted and plagued by sin. In fact, there is even a tweet by John Piper that he came into utter criticism under because he was talking about this spread of Ebola virus saying this is a really horrible thing this is a really terrible thing and yet it doesn't even compare to the Ebola of sin imagine that in terms of something that is so drastically worse than some of these terrible viruses virii I think is grammatically correct <laughs> the plural of virus I don't know, ask an English teacher on that sometime. All of these things that are spreading and taking people's lives, they don't even compare to this pandemic and epidemic of sin itself. And yet, the promise of being rid of that sin is exactly what you are an heir of. You even promised the idea of being included, being brought into a fellowship of other believers, being brought into individuals who are like-minded, who are common-purpose-minded, who are a community of individuals, at least this is how it should be, a community of individuals that seek the betterment of somebody else. That's the epitome of a utopian Christian society. And by utopian, I mean a Christian society that is exactly blissful, exactly wonderful to be a part of, and is exactly the type of society and community that can adequately handle whatever needs that you want, is a group of individuals that are more concerned about somebody else other than themselves. And when everybody within a community is concerned about everybody else, that's when everybody gets taken care of. It's when you got a group of kids and a youth group that come together and they're me-centered. I don't mean me-centered, but I mean like you-centered, and then like me being me-centered, and then all that pride mixed in one room, and it's all this combustion of ego that overflows and, and explodes just like the hot dog process that I was explaining to some of the youth leaders earlier. Imagine that. That's what pride looks like. There's two individuals within this room that have a wonderful illustration of what pride looks like and are probably not going to eat hot dogs ever again. <laughs> or maybe they will, and then every time they go, man, this was just like pride. <laughs> being brought into that fellowship and community of believers. Being being sharers in the promise of the Holy Spirit these Old Testament saints kept having these promises of God dwelling with them and you get to be included in that now. And you get to start experiencing that. A community of people whereby which God is dwelling with them, you get to start experiencing that by receiving God personally in the person of the Holy Spirit. So these are the mysteries and these of course are the advantages. I mean, if you think about that, think about having God with you. Think about the confidence that the psalmist experienced in Psalm 23 Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I can go through what the psalmist is categorizing as the epitome of the worst places to go. That's the expression. I can, and he's even saying, I'm being brought through that by God. He's saying, I can go through that. I can experience the valley of the shadow of death. I can experience this horrible thing, but there is one specific advantage that allows me to go through this and allows me to go through this favorably and end up on the other side is because of the presence of God. So it makes Psalm 23 so amazing. And that promise is yours. You experience that. And so with that in mind, that provides a foundation for what we're going to be looking at tonight. And so tonight, we're going to examine the direct result of knowing this mystery. The direct result of knowing what this mystery is, is going to create one very, very significant advantage in each and every one of your lives. And that's what I would characterize and explain as brazen Christianity. One direct result of the mystery being explained and being received is that it produces brazen Christians. Now what do I mean by brazen? The idea of the term brazen means two specific things. A brazen individual is somebody who is bold. They are bold. They have a confidence about them and in fact they don't mind who they are and they Purpose to be in your face about it. That's the idea of bold, right? When you you have David running out onto the battlefield to face Goliath, that's brazen. That's bold. Plus, not only is it the idea of somebody who has total confidence to push forward and even be up in front and open and personal about who they are, about what they've experienced, but it's also those types of individuals that are not ashamed. And you could say, well, that's probably synonymous concepts or related concepts, and that could be, except times where there is boldness that is expressed in some people's lives, there could be a point in which you are not, in which you actually are ashamed about what you're being bold on. The idea is to categorize and encapsulate the entire principle that as a Christian I am bold Bold about my salvation, and I am not ashamed of my salvation now, that creates a good picture. However, I want to make sure that we're clear on the type of brazen Christianity that I'm not addressing in this particular sermon. Now, this doesn't mean that this other kind of brazen Christianity is less important or anything of that effect, but if you remember from Romans one sixteen the apostle Paul expressed his brazen Christianity when he says, I'm not ashamed." Of the gospel. I have no shame when it comes to telling people about Jesus. I have no shame when it comes to living out these truths within my life because this is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of this because I know it's power. Shame of the gospel comes with individuals that don't see the gospel as powerful. You might think about it as being beneficial. You might think about it as being another good way of life. You might think about it as being something helpful. But that will create shame within the life of an individual. It is only when you recognize its power, when you see its transforming power and its ability to conquer and murder sin and grant you an enjoyable lifestyle, that's when you become brazen. That's when you're not ashamed of it. But that's actually not the kind of brazen Christianity that I'm talking about. That's great, but there's a specific kind of boldness and a specific kind of confidence that I want to express that's being brought out within this text. And in order to know that, we need to read it. So, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Remember, the foundational principle is the fact that God has revealed to you a mystery that all of the promises of the Old Testament, every single one of them is for you, you can be included into the community of believers, grafted into that same vine like Romans 11 talks about, and you can have God dwelling with you to experience that Psalm 23-like mentality of being able to go through anything without fear. Keep that in mind as a foundation. Verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to you, the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through the faith in Him. And so the first thing that we can begin to look at that's important to recognize is more benefits that keep coming out of the book of Ephesians. If you haven't recognized by now at three chapters in that the book of Ephesians is granting you so much benefit, so much riches, and indeed that's an area of focus in our study this evening, then you haven't been paying attention to what God's been trying to communicate to you. He's saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to benefit you, I'm going to give you things that are going to be so beneficial and essential to this life and to your enjoyment and to your satisfaction, and in your struggle against that plague known as sin. I'm going to give you all kinds of great things within this very epistle itself. So we see these benefits that are coinciding with brazen Christianity. So I'm not just simply talking about an attitude whereby you can go out and do good at making converts though that will help here. It's not just simply Jehovah's Witness or Mormon mentality where all you really need to be most concerned about, and especially Jehovah's Witness mentality, all you really need to be concerned about is getting more people into the faith. In fact, that is your salvation in the Jehovah's Witness church. You are supposed to, according to the Watchtower Society, go around in door-to-door evangelism and get converts. And what this does for you is allows you to be counted worthy to join the battle of Armageddon and to fight. And if you survive that, then you're gain, you get eternal life. Sounds great, except for it's not biblical. So, I mean, if, 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 it's not, if that's good for you, then wonderful. But it, it's not biblical. And so the idea is is there is a lifestyle that receives benefits known as a brazen Christian lifestyle. It's not just simply an idea of gaining converts as much as it is an idea of the eternal glory of God being displayed and enjoyed in a wonderful kind of lifestyle. Because you can see the Apostle Paul a lot of times preaching throughout the New Testament these kinds of things. And he talks about it in terms of preaching against sin. And so you'd think that this is just a cosmic killjoy of taking away your cookies before dinner time. Some of you kids that are younger thought that was more important and funny. Some of you kids that are older were like, I can eat cookies and dinner. I do it all the time. It doesn't ruin my appetite at all. In fact, it makes me hungry. In fact, I have cookies before, during, and after. And I eat my dinner and I enjoy it. Never mind, anyways. <laughs> But he also spends tons of time preaching upon a specific concept that was mentioned within our text of the unfathomable riches of Christ. The idea is the term unfathomable. How many of you guys have walked around and just in casual conversation with one another, like when something comes up, you're like, that is totally unfathomable in fact it's even hard to say quickly you're like unfathomable phenomenon although what is this word what is what is this word that's not commonly used anymore what is it even doing within our text the idea of unfathomable is something that is beyond comprehension so the right response to hearing a word like unfathomable is dude i don't i don't fathom that word i don't it's beyond my understanding. It's kind of too big, and I'm going to take that as disrespect that you would say that. Something a big word that I don't get. But the idea of unfathomable is something that is beyond comprehension. And so he is saying that there are riches, and in fact, indeed, all of the riches of Jesus Christ are beyond comprehension. Things that you can learn and receive from Christ have a depth to them that, as John Piper even said, it will take God an eternity to begin to reveal and explain them all to you. Being a Christian is like waking up on Christmas morning, only instead of unpacking and unraveling gifts that are materialistically valued, that are toys, that are books, that are clothing, that are things that... Pass away. Instead of receiving those things in the riches of Jesus Christ, it's like unpacking truths that benefit your life. Unpacking a truth that helps you to understand how to suffer. Unpacking a truth that helps you understand what suffering is for. Unpacking a truth that reveals to you what sin actually is. Unpacking a truth that reveals to you your need for God. It's like sitting under the most essential concepts for life and eternal life and life abundantly and getting those from now until never-ending. that the riches that are given are totally beyond comprehension even to the degree that our nature has to be entirely changed that we would have to become like Christ in order to be able to understand the depths of how amazing these riches are going to be. That's what it's like in eternity. That's what it's going to be like as a Christian who experiences eternity. You Think after... If there's such a thing as a passage of time, you think after 10 years, you think after 10,000 years, you think after 20,000 years you're going to be bored? Not even close. The idea of being in heaven is an absolute eternity whereby which God just continues to unveil and continues to reveal and continues to unravel and explain and open up all of the goodness of His grace and His mercy and it's never going to end. That's what makes heaven so amazing is because of the grace of God. The very same things that you can start to experience Now, grow in intensity and a never-ending duration. That is what it's like to dwell with God forever. And Paul says that the lives that are the recipients of Christ and His work are the lives that experience value that is literally mind-blowing. When you examine uh, chapter one, verse seven, you begin to see that God's riches towards us are in the same context as his forgiveness of sin to to begin to experience forgiveness of sin, to begin to be a recipient of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby your sins are being forgiven on a continual and ongoing basis is to be rich it's to be rich. Romans 2.4 even shows us that God's riches are seen in kindness and tolerance and in patience and in kindness that leads you to repentance. It is of significant wealth and significant value to repent from sin. Think about that the next time that you're struggling with sin and you're having an issue because the fact of the matter is that every sin that you struggle with, every sin that you have a common reoccurring problem with, there's one specific issue with that. You keep wanting it. Don't don't go into a victim mentality where it's like I don't have any control or any responsibility over the sin. It just keeps overtaking me. The real specific issue is that you haven't understood the value, the riches that exist in repentance. The kind of lifestyle that comes about as a result of repentance from sin. One that is enjoyable. That's that's the idea of riches. Riches are things that are good, things that are enjoyable, things that are wonderful to have, things that people seek after and long for. And in the process of repentance you get to gain that. It's an incredible truth. We're told in the New Testament that riches of God's glory are supplying things that we actually need If you're lacking something, if you feel that you're without something that is essential for your life, it is the riches of the glory of God that provides that. The New Testament teaches us that riches are talked about in terms of receiving assurance, receiving understanding, receiving wisdom from God, receiving knowledge. All things that are essential to experience this life without getting knocked down by everything that sends at You. That's like what the Apostle Paul could say in Second Corinthians, that we are crushed The terminology and the language to sort of paraphrase that is if you are in a room that is collapsing in upon you from all corners and it gets to the point whereby it is squeezing and pushing upon every single part of your life, every single part of your body. It is squishing you, it is squeezing you as if you were going to be the next fruit juice. It is pressing in upon you in every single way that you could possibly imagine and it feels like it is overtaking you but he says we are not overtaken by these things it's because of the grace of Christ it's because of the gospel that you can experience such pressure and not break it even talks to us about Moses who found the riches of Christ who saw the riches of Christ as being greater wealth than earthly wealth Hebrews 11 in the specific reference to Moses is such the youth group verse The life of Moses is such the youth group life that needs to be examined. He was living in literally Egypt. You guys have heard me hound this into you time and time again. He was literally living in the world. Egypt was the known world in that day and time. They were the pinnacle of anybody who wanted to be anybody. They were the top race. They were the Aryan society. They were the legit, wealthy military power. They had no worries about anything. No cares or concerns about anything else in the world. If the Hittites wanted to come down, didn't matter. You had the greatest fighting force in the world. And in fact, they're too busy fighting barbarians. If you wanted the Matani to come down and do anything, didn't matter. They were scared of you. If you wanted any of these nations to rise up against you, they wouldn't because they were already under your control. They were relying upon you for money. They were relying upon you for military aid. And as Moses, you're even a part of the royal family. I'll have to go through it in greater detail at some other time, but there's probably not like the movies have shown us that Moses is growing up with Ramesses and that they're brothers in this kind of a sense. There's no real specific mention of a specific king underneath the real pharaoh of the Exodus. There is a possibility and a great chance in studying history that Moses would have been in line to be the next pharaoh. Several dynasties were often started by those that weren't even members of the household of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who had tons of ladies to hang out with, to put it G-rated, would go in and get other children from these ladies and in fact would take them into his own household and would examine them. And if you were strongest, you would become the firstborn of Egypt and you would then be placed as the next ruler. didn't have to be of the actual household of Pharaoh. In fact, you didn't even have to be born in the household of Pharaoh. The idea that they adopted Moses because he was a beautiful baby was a very common practice. And in fact, given all of the hype around Moses in uh, Pharaoh's family, there's a great chance that he could have become the next Pharaoh of Egypt. But at any rate, if that's not true, that he was slated to be the next Pharaoh, it doesn't matter because he was still in the royal family. He still had everything perfectly taken care of that he could do. And yet, he found something so radical So absolutely stupid. So absolutely mind-blowingly dumb. Dumb! This was a bad idea! (coughs) Looking at it from the world standpoint, that is. Moses bailed on all of that wonderful lifestyles of the rich and the famous that we just talked about and and lived in a desert. Lived with a group of grumbling and complaining Israelites. And in fact, lived in a group of Israelites that he had to contend with. And in fact, lived with a group of people that he was actually even afraid his own life was going to be taken from him. And in fact... It's even worse than that. It says in Hebrews 11 that he bailed on that lifestyle because he saw that the reproach of Christ was the greater riches. He found that Christly wealth, that Christocentric riches, that Christian riches and a lifestyle that corresponds with that, he found that riches were in being reproached. Another fancy word like unfathomable. The idea is, is that he found being disgraced as greater value. He found being considered of no value by those around him to be of greater value. He found being insulted. He found being mistreated. He found persecution as being a lifestyle that was more worth living than the treasures of Egypt. And indeed, being placed in such dire circumstances and situations as being out in the middle of nowhere where you have no food, you have no water, you just ran from Egypt's finest army You're going into being made fun of, being insulted, being mistreated, being persecuted. And then Hebrews even goes on to even talk about people who were sawn in two. People who had to run and live in caves. People who had to experience lives that as we would look at it from a worldly perspective, is absolutely ridiculous to experience these kinds of lives. Why wouldn't you experience, here's the word, comfort instead of those things? Because those who are recipients of Jesus Christ, who have Jesus Christ, who have God living with them, knows that that kind of a lifestyle is so much more valuable. It may not be a popular Christian teaching amongst youth group to talk about the idea that it is, it is entirely worth it and entirely valuable to be so obsessed with Christ and Christianity and the gospel that you would in fact die because of it. The closing portion of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about those people who experience suffering that they're individuals that the world the world is not even worthy of. Lives that are on a level so much higher than other lives Not in terms of them being more righteous of themselves or being better persons than of themselves, but lives that are so much higher because they experience lives that are so much lower, so much more humble is the issue there. True value. In fact, of the Christian, the psalmist says that when a person dies, when a holy one dies, when a saint dies, it is weighty to God. The life that is lived, that when it experiences a death as a Christian, is something that impacts, that has value, as if you were weighing things on a scale and something is heavier. It's going to go like this. This is heavier. This is not heavy. And this was a, a measuring system of determining the value of something. That when God weighs the life of an individual who dies in Christ, who dies as a believer, it does that to God's scale. And He says, That's what's weighty. That's what's valuable to me. persecution of greater riches the riches of Christ which are replete they continue over every passage of scripture nearly are riches that are yours if you believe in Christ Now as we examine those things, we can begin to understand that there are probably some ideas of things and responsibilities that we should be doing other than the implied ones and that is repenting from what this world has to offer and diving headlong into anything that Christ says that we should be doing. But we can see here that these riches and these truths as uh, verses 8 and 9 uh, and even 10 are expressing to us that these are Truths that are revealed by God, so the place to find these things is within Scripture, and that creates an utter diligence on our part, not just to excuse me, simply read the Bible, but to gold mine. Go in to Scripture with the attitude of finding valuable things. It's like Psalm one hundred nineteen. And some people have just simply reduced that passage of Scripture to this routine Scripture memorization. Just memorize Scripture and that's how you combat sin. But the psalmist says, I have treasured within my heart your words. I have treasured your law within my heart. I have treasured your commandments. I have treasured your promises within my heart. That's how I don't sin against you. Because when I come to Scripture and I'm pulling out all of these truths and all of these things i am taking them into the very recesses of my heart as if it were a treasure house as if it were a storehouse where i keep gold and valuable things and i lock those away within my heart as things that i value i value what god has to say Then he talks about the idea that he is presenting these things, that they are actually even things that are being made known through the church. Now I would take this as church universal, and it would begin to express a concept that now is the time that we stop looking for things in the world what we should be finding for in the church. We should we should stop valuing relationships? with the world and in fact I think if you were to take a serious and honest look at what the bible says about friendship with the world is enmity with god it is actually hostility with god not that as the bible also says that you join the convent that you lock yourselves in a room that you bar yourself in a walled castle somewhere off in the wilderness whereby you will experience nobody in the world That that's not the lifestyle that you end up doing. You evangelize, you preach the gospel, you engage in certain kinds of conversations with the world, but that you don't seek for in the world what you should be seeking for in the church, in other brothers and sisters in Christ. Yoked relationships that are not pulling you in directions away from God. Unequally yoked relationships, and I'm not talking about throwing eggs on each other's faces and seeing whose yoke is similar. I'm talking about the yoke that you put on oxen. (laughs) And this is a, a wooden beam that you put on these beasts of labor and it controls them and pushes them in the whatever direction you want it to go. That's what an unequally yoked relationship is. It's whereby you go over to somebody else and you lock yourself in a wooden beam with them and they get to control what you're doing and where you're going. That's the kind of relationship that should be utterly avoided. Amos three even says, How can two people walk together unless they're in agreement? Well there's there's answers to that question deceptively, dishonestly, inconsistently. That's that's ways that people can begin to walk together and have some kind of a facade or some kind of a fake idea of agreement. But the only way that people can truly and legitimately walk together and have great relationships with one another can only be seen in common purpose or common goal. What is the union that you can have with somebody that doesn't care about your salvation? Doesn't care about your holiness, or your sanctification, which is also synonymous for experiencing these riches. Those are those are lesser degree relationships and lesser degree pursuits and pursuing sin outside of these concepts is degrading the quality of life into things that are just not going to be satisfactorily. Now notice this, and we're going to unfortunately have to close and continue pick up here again next week. But if you'll notice again verse 10, something that is going to be considerate in the idea of the unfathomableness of these riches. Verse 10, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to who? To other Christians? Be made known to a a lost and, and dying and hurtful world and, of course, missions is an incredibly important concept. Spreading the gospel and making these things known is an incredibly important gospel and truth and thing that we need to be doing. But what does it say that these things, this manifold, which by the way, that word manifold means multicolored. You want to see something pretty? You want to see a painting that's beautiful? It's the wisdom of God in all of its different facets so that you could stand in greater enjoyment of seeing how wise God is. And that this manifold wisdom that, that you receive can also be something that is made known through the church to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now we would understand those to be angels. That's a, that's a New Testament term for angelic beings. And that could even be, as Piper had concluded, that it could even be something that would include those who have fallen, the fallen angels, otherwise known as demons, but specifically focusing on the idea of angels in the heavenly places that they get to see glimpses of God that without God acting within our lives, they wouldn't normally see. No angel, again as Piper pointed out, no angel in heaven can sing amazing grace and mean it. They haven't experienced the grace of God They haven't experienced, or at least we could say specifically, the grace of God in salvation. They didn't fall, the ones that are still in heaven, the angels that are still there. That's one of the reasons why Peter talks about that there's things that take place within our lives, God's involvement within our lives, that angels long to look at. That what we experience is something, not that angels would be jealous of, but that angels would look into and begin to behold wisdom and experiences of God that without our salvation, they wouldn't be able to experience. Does that begin to help paint a picture of how great it is to be a Christian? Of the wonderful lifestyle that you could experience as a believer is something that angelic beings with as awesome and as magnificent as they are as wonderful as they are, as as beings who have experienced nothing but the presence of God, that they can look down on our lifestyles and be increasing their understanding of the glory and the magnificence of God through your life. Again, we have to close there for this evening. But as you begin to think about these concepts, think about the riches of Christ as we've explained them, and think about lifestyles that even angels can look at and begin to look at all the multi-different colors of the wisdom of God and begin to say, I have more reason to glorify God because of what's taking place within your life as a Christian. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the grace and the privilege that you have given to us to to read these things so Father we pray that you'd be glorified help us to learn and understand and, and commit these truths as ways of lives so that we can experience these benefits and we can glorify you and we can avoid sin for it's in Jesus name that we pray Amen